Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. I'm glad you joined us today. You know, each day we live, we have a series of choices of where we spend our time, what to think, and how to go about our day. And some people choose to fill the gaps in their day with worthwhile things. That's why I like uplifting podcasts. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life and the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. We believe at the foundation of our behavior and beliefs is the way we see the world and ourselves in it. So hopefully today, in this time together, we will get a new perspective of how to think and live better. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about our noble responsibility. Now, what you might not realize is that we have more in common with fish than you might think. If we could really see what is all around us, we would realize that we live underneath a huge ocean, an ocean of air that is several miles deep. The air pressure where we live is the same as that of being 10 meters deep in seawater. If you rise in altitude, however, there is a significant decrease in air pressure, and this means thinner air or fewer oxygen molecules are present. For example, at sea level, there is effectively 21% oxygen in the atmosphere. At 28,000 feet, however, that drops to 7.4%. That's where the term thin air comes from. Now, that might not seem like a big deal. But if we were to pluck you out of your sea level oxygen levels and immediately drop you at 28,000 feet, you wouldn't survive. You would first go unconscious and then you would die. This is why airplanes are pressurized. Now, your body can survive in thinner air, but you need to slowly, over weeks or months, acclimatize to living at gradually higher and higher altitudes. That's why climbing the world's highest peaks are so dangerous. If climbers spend too long at high altitudes without acclimatization, they can die from pulmonary edema or cerebral edema. Anyone who attempts to climb a mountain over 28,000 feet is taking their life into their own hands. At that altitude, if anything goes wrong, you sprain an ankle or have some other type of injury, you get altitude sickness or any other condition, No one can help you off the mountain. Why? Because those who are there with you are barely alive themselves. Now, K2 is the second highest peak on earth and stands at 28,251 feet. Of the five tallest mountains in the world, more climbers die on K2 than any other mountain. Approximately one climber in four who reach the summit will die on the descent of the climb. Now, while over 4,000 people have climbed Everest, only 377 people have climbed K2, and 91 of them have died. On almost every summit attempt in the last several decades, climbers have been assisted to the top by Sherpas. Sherpas are a Tibetan ethnic group native to Nepal and the surrounding regions. And because Sherpas live at higher altitudes year-round, Many make a living as guides to the top of the world's highest peaks like Everest and K2. A few years ago, Sharing Dorje Sherpa, who runs a Himalayan guiding business, got the chance to join a Western climbing team 
not as a guide, but as a climber. And he was hoping that the addition of K2 to his resume would help his guiding business. Now, the team worked for weeks to reach the last stage of the climb. They were high on the mountain and ready to attempt the summit. The plan was to leave early in the morning and try to summit just after noon, then descend as quickly and safely as possible. Almost all deaths happen on the descent when you're tired and the adrenaline of reaching the summit is gone. However, their summit bid was in trouble before they got started. The Sherpas placing fixed ropes on the climbing route ahead of them were late in their work, and as a result, the summit team couldn't summit until 6 p.m., meaning they would have to descend in the dark. So many members of the team chose not to attempt the summit that day. But Sharing decided to go anyway, along with several other climbers. Not long after they began, standing in their way on the way to the summit is an obstacle called the bottleneck. It is by far the deadliest spot on the mountain. It is pitched at 60 degrees and is a 100-meter traverse from side to side along an ice wall, which is directly below a field of collapsing seracs. Now, seracs are huge, overhanging columns of glacial ice. You see, as the glacier above the serac slides down, it pushes the ice over the edge, and it breaks or avalanches down the face of the bottleneck. And if you happen to be hanging on the ice wall when these seracs fall, you can be thrown off the ice wall and fall thousands of feet down the rock face of the mountain below. Now, Shireen got safely to the summit of K2 around 6.15 p.m., a tremendous accomplishment. However, beneath him, a Norwegian climber was killed on his descent by an icefall. What Shireen didn't know was that the icefall knocked out all the fixed ropes on the bottleneck, and in total darkness without ropes, climbers ahead of him started to fall to their death. Without ropes, a French, Pakistani, Irish, and three Korean climbers all fell and were killed. Two Nepalese climbers also died. And in the darkness and chaos, the death toll rose to 11 bodies. But above the chaos, Sharing on his descent couldn't see anyone above him or below him. He shouted for two Sherpa climbers who were previously near him, but there was no answer. And when he arrived at the top of the bottleneck, he discovered the fixed ropes were gone. Without the fixed ropes to hold on to as he crossed the icy face, he was stuck. He sat down, knowing this meant almost certain death. He knew he wouldn't likely make it off the mountain, and to make matters worse, he had ascended that day without oxygen, and his body was depleted. He'd been in the death zone and the cold for far too long. He had wanted to get K2 on his resume, but he was going to die in the process. So he resigned himself to the fact that he likely would not make it. As he pressed on, he saw two lights. They were the headlamps of Pemba and Pasang, the two Sherpa climbers he had seen before. And once together, the three shouted to each other in the fierce wind. Pemba had an ice axe and said he was going to attempt the bottleneck, and he turned and started to climb down. Pasang then told Shiring he didn't have an ice axe, and without it, it's impossible to traverse the solid ice of the bottleneck. And it was then that Shiring stopped worrying about the notoriety his business and he would get if he climbed K2 
and started to focus on how to give Pasang help to get off the mountain. When he started to focus on how to save a life, he knew that somehow they would get off that mountain. So he short-roped Pasang to his own safety harness and started across the ice face. Now, this is extremely dangerous. It means Pasang, with no ice axe, was tied to Shireen. And if Pasang slipped, both would be pulled off the ice face and fall to their death. Through the dark and cold, they inched and chipped their way across and down the ice wall. Then, all of a sudden, Pasang slipped. And it pulled both climbers down, sliding along the ice. Shireen pushed his ice axe into the surface, leaned into it. And at first, it didn't slow them down at all. Earlier that day, he had seen a climber with the correct equipment in the exact same spot slide down the ice and fall to his death. Then, all of a sudden, they stopped. Shireen's ice axe point had stuck in a tiny crack in the ice. He told Pasang to chip away at the ice with his boots to get a foothold, and he did. Then Shireen found a secure hold for his ice axe a few feet over, and with Pasang held up by Shireen, they repeated that process for hours. Now, most remarkable is neither climber had oxygen. They were beyond exhausted, but somehow they made their way to safety. And Shireen's rescue of Pasang is noted by the Explorers Club as the most daring rescue in climbing history. To short rope another climber at 27,000 feet and traverse an ice wall with the weight of both climbers was deemed impossible. Now, when asked how he made the rescue and found the strength to do what no other climber has done, Shireen said, when his focus shifted from himself, from what he was getting from the climb, to saving another person, to what he had to give in the climb, he found strength that he didn't know he had. He said he felt a responsibility to help him get off the mountain. Now, few of us will ever find ourselves atop K2, but we often find ourselves leading a team or family or in a number of other situations in which we may be tempted to think almost exclusively about what we can get. And when that is our focus, we often get weary in the climb of things. But like Shireen, when we turn from getting to giving, we find strength and inspiration we didn't know we had before. You see, there's little inspiration in getting. But when we forget ourselves and focus on helping others in their climb or goals or effort, we get inspired. We also find our true capability. Years ago, a pair of best-selling authors proposed that our true worth is determined by how much we give rather than how much we receive or accumulate. Do you think that's true? You know, it's funny, Forbes magazine's best-selling issue each year is the Forbes famous list of the wealthiest people in the United States. And we look at the list and wonder, what would it be like to have billions of dollars? If we had that wealth, we could buy whatever we wanted, travel in private jets, and enjoy the finest things in life. If we could only be worth as much as these people. But is that the measure of true worth? Well, perhaps you could ask Maureen Johnson. Last year, in the middle of the COVID quarantine, she said, my mother just called me. She had ordered some flowers from a small local store to be delivered and dropped on the porch. And when they brought the flowers, they said, hang on, we have something for you. 
and the driver went back to the truck and proceeded to bring out a bag of hot meals and then multiple bags of groceries. My mom was speechless and asked why. They said, when you called, you mentioned you had promised your daughter not to go out, so we were worried you had no food and brought some, and they refused any payment for it. Or you could take a cue from Ron Lynch in Sandy, Utah. During COVID, 12-year-old Matthew Flores approached the postal worker, Ron Lynch, and asked if he had any extra advertisements or random newsletters. The boy explained that he loved to read, but couldn't afford books or even the bus fare to the library, so he would take anything the mailman had. Well, Lynch was floored. He said the boy didn't want electronics, and he didn't want to sit in front of the TV playing games all day. The kid just wanted to read. So Lynch asked his Facebook friends for reading material, and soon Flores was getting books from all over the world, and Flores is now in the business of getting free books for kids in need. Or perhaps Brenda Jones, a 69-year-old grandmother. She'd spent a long year on the donor list waiting to receive a liver. On July 18th, the hospital in North Texas called, and they had a viable liver for her. Meanwhile, 23-year-old Abigail Flores also needed a liver. And her situation was more urgent than Jones's. Without a transplant, doctors feared Flores maybe had one more day to live. So they asked Brenda Jones to give up her spot on the list to give up the liver so that Flores could get the precious organs she needed. Jones agreed. In my heart, she said, I wouldn't have been able to live with the liver if I had let this little girl die. So Jones was placed back atop the donor list and would eventually get the needed liver. Here's my point. Perhaps there should be a different kind of Forbes list, a list of people who give. You see, this is where real value is found. In giving, you find your worth. Now, if you've been in business for very long, you've probably, like me, come to realize that the worth of your business is determined by what you give. Do you give to your team just for the sake of giving? Do you give to your customers more than they receive for the price of the product? Do you follow up, offer support, answer questions, and provide value without the expectation of something in return? If so, my bet is you have a business that will grow for years to come. I'm sure you, like me, know people who focus almost exclusively on what they get and how they're perceived, and whether they get their way, or whether they're inconvenienced. Being around these people is both tiresome, and doing business with them often difficult because they're always weighing whether they get anything from giving. You know, the scripture says, give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give unto you. The law of giving is a law or principle with the promise that if you become a person who focuses primarily on giving, you will find a greater return than might otherwise be possible. Years ago, Dale Carnegie said, you can close more business in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get people interested in you. Now, think about the people in your life. You likely know someone who's more interested in you than they are in getting you interested in them. And these people are usually rich with friends and tend to be happier people overall. So then, how can we change our tendencies and mindset to begin to focus on what we give rather than what we get? 
Well, like any muscle or mindset, it takes conditioning. A few years ago, Adam Rifkin shared his simple practice called the five-minute favor. He says that giving doesn't mean you have to become Mother Teresa or Gandhi. You simply need to give a five-minute favor several times a day. And I will tell you from experience, the practice of five-minute favors can and will change your view. Here's how it works. We all find ourselves with five minutes here and there throughout our day. Perhaps your appointment ended early. Or perhaps you have five minutes of quiet in the car after you drop the kids off at school. Whenever they happen, we all have five-minute moments throughout our day. And every time you find five minutes, think how and to whom you can give. It's amazing how rich your life will become if you take all the extra five minutes in your day to give. You know, a phone call to offer encouragement or five minutes to offer advice and help a team member with their business or time to make an introduction to help someone or returning the shopping cart for a fellow shopper or a host of other ways to give. And here's what you'll find. Some people may give back in return, but you will get something more valuable, a new view. You will see life differently. You'll have more peace and you will feel more valuable of more worth in the world. You know, self-worth does so much in our life. Recently, researchers from Brown University in a Florida state found that self-worth doesn't make people immune from struggles in life. But what they did find is that self-worth is perfectly correlated with two important outcomes, happiness and freedom from stress. Could it be that when we have self-worth, we are indeed more happy? I think so. You know, not long ago, I was on the phone with a person who was struggling in their life and business, and they just couldn't find the spark, the motivation to move forward. They were tired and bored and anxious and not feeling at their best. Well, I suggested this five-minute favor of living, and I invited them to give it a try, to do a five-minute favor several times a day, and then we agreed to talk a week later. As you might expect, when we talked, many things had changed in their life, the most important of which was they felt better about themselves. They said at first, as they got started, they found themselves doing the same five-minute favor over and over again. So. Then they challenged themselves to mix it up. They decided that each day they had to do at least one unique five-minute favor, a type of favor they hadn't done before. And they felt like a door was opened in their life. They found a new way of living. La Liberté Eclairon Le Monde is a colossal neoclassical sculpture that stands on Liberty Island in New York Harbor. The 300-foot-tall statue, the Statue of Liberty, is a gift from the people of France to the people of the United States, and it is called the Golden Door to Freedom. Now, the statue is a figure of Libertas, a Roman liberty goddess. She stands with a torch in one hand and a book in the other. While the statue was a gift, the United States had to raise the necessary funds to pay for the site design and the pedestal upon which the statue would stand. Grover Cleveland vetoed a bill that would have provided the needed funds for the project. So, Joseph Pulitzer, 
announced a fundraising drive to raise the funds needed, equivalent to about $2.3 million today. And Pulitzer promised to print in his newspaper the name of every donor. A young girl gave 60 cents. Another donor gave five cents. A dollar was given by a very aged and lonely woman. Residents of a center for alcoholics gave $15. A kindergarten class in Iowa mailed $1.35. And on and on it went until the money was raised. After the pedestal was built and Lady Liberty, the mother of exiles, was placed atop the pedestal, a tablet was mounted on the front side of the pedestal. And on that tablet was written an inscription. What does that inscription say? It is inscribed with the words penned by Emma Lazarus in 1883 in her sonnet, The New Colossus, which says, in part, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, and send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now, where did that sonnet come from? Well, Lazarus wrote it as a donation with other works of art to be sold at auction to raise funds for the statue. Those words were literally a gift. And if you, like me, have had the privilege of standing beneath the shadow of this majestic lady in New York, you felt the spirit of the Statue of Liberty. It's incredible. And what's most remarkable is the statue was a gift. The pedestal was a gift from thousands of people. The sonnet was a gift. And the sonnet's meaning was to remind us that living in this country is a gift, that welcoming others is a gift. You see, when we give, we create the golden door, not only into our country, but into better lives. Now, being a giver often can result in getting. Years ago, Robert Cialdini wrote his famous book entitled Influence. And in one of my favorite chapters, Cialdini tells of a study conducted by psychologist Dennis Reagan. In the study, participants were invited one by one into an art studio and told that they would be rating the quality of paintings. Now, this wasn't entirely true. In fact, they themselves were the ones being evaluated. They were paired with another person who was also to be rating the paintings. However, this second person was, in fact, a lab assistant. At one point in the rating session, the lab assistant exits the room and comes back with two sodas and says, I was thirsty and got you a soda as well. Now, the lab assistant repeats this for half of the participants, and for the other half, he doesn't buy a soda at all. Later, the study participants were asked to buy raffle tickets to help a cause. And those participants who received the gift of the soda bought twice as many raffle tickets. Cialdini's point? Giving creates reciprocity. Giving creates influence. So why give? Just to gain influence or the hope of reciprocity? I don't think so. Somehow that seems to lack the spirit of real giving. So how do you become a genuinely giving person? Well, the French have an expression that the English adopted into their own language. That expression, noblesse oblige. A hundred years ago, it meant that if you were a noble gentleman or woman, 
you had an obligation to be generous towards those in your purview. That to those who lived on your lands, you held an obligation, a noble obligation to protect and provide for them. Now, in its day, noblesse oblige implied that you had wealth and as a result, an obligation. Today, the words remain, but the meaning is different. Nowadays, noblesse oblige means this. You have a noble responsibility, a duty to use your gifts, your talents, your strengths for good. And I believe we've been given certain endowments in life. Now, an endowment is a gift that is bequeathed to someone that can continue to give in perpetuity. For example, when an endowment is set up for scholarships at a university, the money is put into an investment account and the interest each year funds scholarships. Likewise, your maker and life and circumstances have given to you certain endowments. And the purpose of these gifts is to be an ongoing blessing to those around you. In fact, I believe that people are placed in our life with certain endowments to help us in our time of need. But this always doesn't happen. Sometimes the endowed person is a getter, not a giver, and they don't share their endowment. And sometimes we aren't open to what they have to give. But at other times, both the giver and the receiver are aligned And that noblesse oblige takes over, and both are blessed in the process. Now, I've asked myself from time to time, what endowments has heaven and life given to me? And more importantly, what am I doing with those endowments? Do I feel a noble responsibility to use my gifts and strength for good? It's funny, but when you live life with this mindset, with this view— You are so much more apt to give without the expectation of receiving because the strength you have was a gift to you. You didn't earn it necessarily, but you see yourself as having a noble obligation to share it. Now, the root word of noble is no, spelled G-N-O. And it means to know, to acknowledge, to notice, to recognize. While we think of being noble as showing high moral principles, its root is more akin to recognizing that we have a duty. When I was a young man, like all young men, I had the typical troubles with self-worth and identity in high school. I tried in so many ways to find myself, so much so that I never felt at rest or at peace. It was a difficult time for me. And I had a coach, Tim Pontius. When I would come to practice, Coach Pontius would always be there. He was always at ease. He would often come over and sit next to me, or during our warm-up, he would stretch nearby. And he was never in a hurry. He just asked questions and listened. And he would pause and wait for me to talk and then talk a little more. He confided in me, and over the course of several years, this noble gift of being at peace started to rub off on me. And he taught me that who I was, was enough. And this was a tremendous gift to me. In fact, it gave me confidence that I would have never found on my own at a time in my life when I needed self-worth. And I've reflected back on Coach Pontius many times in my life. And I wonder, did he know he had this endowment, this gift? Is that why he was a coach? Well, regardless, it was noblesse oblige. 
I think he knew he had a noble responsibility to give of his endowed strengths. So let me ask you, what are your endowed strengths? You know, when I train on this topic, I often hear people say to the person sitting next to them, oh, I don't have any endowed strengths. But that simply isn't true. We have all been given gifts. And some are different than others, but we all have them. And they don't need to be something magnificent. Just often a simple talent. For example, I have a daughter who has the most incredible smile in the world. Now, my smile isn't that attractive. It's, it's not natural or beautiful. But her smile is magical. And when she smiles, you have to notice. And when you notice, you just feel different. Yes, we all have gifts. And I believe this is how God ministers to his children. He gives to one talents and gifts and expects the one to, in turn, give to others. It creates a beautiful orchestra with each person playing his or her part. And I am certain that you have been given gifts that can do so much to help those around you. I believe you are here on this earth to do more than get or receive or gather to yourself wealth or possess. You are endowed with noble strengths that only you can magnify and grow and give. And like the DNA that can be found in the nucleus of every cell in your body, your talents are embedded in the nucleus of who you are. You are more gifted than you know. And these gifts were given to you because you have the unique characteristics and talent to, in turn, give these gifts to the world. In this very sense, you are amazing and loved and important to your maker, to your team, and to those in your life waiting to be given what you have to offer. And here's the interesting thing. When you open your eyes to this concept, the noblesse oblige concept, that you are endowed and have a noble responsibility to give of that endowment, you start paying attention and see things differently. You see yourself differently, and you see others differently. When I see my wife, I see her gifts first, her endowments. And this occupies my view. And as a result, I see very little of anything else. And the same with my children and the people with whom I work. Each of us has a different endowment. And this makes other people beautiful in so many ways. It helps me accept their weaknesses. And it also helps me accept my own weaknesses. In fact, the more I try to practice noblesse oblige and give of what I have, the more I tolerate my own weaknesses and understand I have worth despite my failings. Can't you see that this way of seeing and living is a great gift? If you can, then let me ask you these final questions. At this time in your life, what have you been given? What is your endowment? Think about it. What gift has been given to you? And then the next question is, how can you give of that endowment to others? And do you feel a noble responsibility to do so? If you can answer those questions today, like Shireen, you will find power that you did not have as you shift from getting to giving. And remember, like the pedestal on which Lady Liberty stands, your giving is a golden door to others. 
a chance for them to find their way in life. And like Lady Liberty, lift up your lamp and be a light for others. If you do, your life will have more spirit, more inspiration as a result. Most of all, open your eyes to a new view of noblesse oblige. Accept the noble responsibility to share your strength and gifts with others. And see the gift in yourself. And see in others the amazing endowments they possess. And watch. More self-worth and value will come into your life. Well, thanks for being here today. Don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.